0: I, I still feel that it's very emotional reading that book for me like I cannot even like I'm reading the introduction and it's already make me cry like oh my god I, I understand how I mean like it's very difficult and I read another chapter and oh my god there's, an, there's a story about the survivor which is I always imagine my family when I read that.
1: Hi, I'm Eliana Chan, (laughs) and this is the Ignoramus' Guide to Surviving Humanity. Um, I'm here with my co-host, Wei Chan, and two amazing guests. We have the American journalist and author of this book, The Jakarta... Oh, is that mirrored? It's The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins. So this is Vincent Bevins, and he's talking to us from Berlin in a Syrian cafe. So that's yes. the ambient noise that you may sometimes hear. And the Indonesian journalist, Fabriana Ferdows. I hope I said your name correctly. Who yeah. is talking to us from Bali. Yay. Thank you both for coming. Thank you hour.
2: so much. Yeah.
3: Thank you. <laughs> um
1: Thank you. and I just want to say that this is the Ignoramus' Guide to Surviving Humanity. I personally am pretty bad with names and dates and also facts. So if you catch me saying anything that's incorrect, just please, uh, please just correct me. (laughs) So I'm not spouting misinformation. Okay, so let's start with um, just basically why this is called the Jakarta Method, what the Jakarta Method is and and why Jakarta and not like say Guatemala or um, whatever. So we get an idea of
3: what this book is about. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, uh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Yeah. The the book to the Jakarta method is about anti-communist mass murder. It's about the intentional extermination of people for being leftists or, or accused of being leftists. And although Indonesia, 1965, the U S and UK backed uh, slaughter of between a half million and million people is not the only um, or the first episode in this story. I think it's the most important story. Um, the most important episode in this story, I think. And um, the term Jakarta enters the Cold War vocabulary because after this this massacre in 1965 in Indonesia, other right-wing groups around the world, um, either anti-communist groups, allies of the United States, potential allies of the United States, took inspiration from what happened in Indonesia. And in Chile and in Brazil in the early 70s, they started using the word Jakarta to denote this plan, this method, this thing that they that they... Um, intended to do to their own leftists. And, and this, this did happen in Chile and then throughout, elsewhere throughout South America and Central America afterwards. So Indonesia 1965 is not only, I think, one of the most important victories of the Cold War uh, for the, the side that ultimately won. It inspired this sort of metaphor, metonym that, 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 uh, that took flight um, in the 70s and 80s.
2: It also seems to be the biggest event I've never
3: heard of in my life, to be honest. Um,
1: yeah, so how it, big it, is this yeah.
3: event, like, let's just say? Um, well, yeah, but as I said, between between half a million and a million innocent uh, people were slaughtered. And Indonesia, now the world's fourth largest con- uh, country by population, one of the real leaders and founders of the third world movement, flipped entirely from being a left-leaning anti-colonial power to one of the most fervent uh, anti-communist uh, countries and one of the most the closest allies of Washington in the Cold War, so... It's a really, really big, uh, big event, I think.
1: Um, and so, you know, when I was it Febriana Fabriana um, earlier, we, I think we both had this question kind of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong Fabriana, you can correct this. but we were, I was a bit like, how did an American <laughs> come to write about this topic? Like why, yeah, why? Um, So really, could you tell us a little bit about that? How did you even come to this idea?
3: Yeah, well, well, Febriana herself, I mean, I'm, I'm really honored that she's here too, because she she was a huge help to me at the very beginning of 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 this research when I didn't know anything. I still would not claim that I know very much about the actual Indonesian story. So I wasn't an expert on 1965 Indonesia when I started and I'm still not now um and she provided huge amounts of help of connecting me to the sort of the real activists and victims and scholars that have been working on this for decades what i saw my role here was is that i I got to indonesia in 2017 and my my technically my job was to cover the region for u.s newspapers for the washington post primarily um but i found that Le- lurking below the surface in whatever I was doing, whatever story I was trying to work on was this bigger story about 1965 in Indonesia. Um, and when I looked closer at it, I realized that it was not only something that Americans didn't really know about, number one. So that's, that's again, as you know, basic journalistic practice, that's number one, this is something that's important. Number two, I realized it was something that my own government was deeply complicit in that had committed really um, horrible atrocities. And number three, and this was the weird sort of random thing, is that it connected to other parts of the world where I had lived before, where I know the languages, where I was able to sort of make a connection that perhaps um, uh, 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 not everyone would be able to make. So I saw my role here as kind of just taking the narrative that had already been established by experts in in Indonesia, like, you know, uh, on Indonesia, like John Rusa, Oscar Wardaya, uh, Bradley Simpson, Taking the, uh, the work, uh, building on the work that, you know, activists and survivors have done for decades, and then just sort of globalizing the story, taking really the basics, not mm-hmm. trying to, not trying to retell it, not trying to do a better job in any way, but to insert it into this larger story of the Cold War to make primarily people in my country understand how important this was and the degree to which my government, the, the government that technically we have democratic control over, uh, was complicit wow. in crimes against yeah. humanity.
2: Wow. Um, and then, that's kind of how you ended up meeting Fabriana. Um, so you did, t- to an extent, um, work together on on the fact finding mission for the book, or how did how did that work?
3: I met her. I met um, her before. Right? I think that's right, right, right Fabriana. Um, yeah, please
1: jump in there and mm. actually ask Fabriana this question. Um, So, what went through your mind? What went through your mind when you got this? uh, an email from, I guess, like, what were you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> this
0: email from I'm, a journalist? I'm just too serious on everything. So um, because I'm a local journalist, I know like I'm an Indonesian journalist and I cover like various issues in my country from Aceh to West Papua, I think. And so many like foreign journalists email me, right? Even like the editor want to interview me. Um, so I didn't really replay to all that email. Um, and I feel that, um, I'm also like having something that I'm doing. So I didn't, I didn't replay if I, if, if I'm not mistaken, like his email, like for like six months, the first time <laughs> his email, because I have this, a uh, very, bad image of foreign journalists <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I have so many like bad experience with them even like the foreign journalists who never traveled to West Papua they're trying to mansplain me so um, I have like the same uh, opinion about at first even like before I knew um, Vincent so I, I just think like oh Vincent just another foreign journalist email me What's the point? And then I saw him on Twitter. I saw like his article, and I did a little bit research. It's a little bit creepy, Vincent, but I get it. But <laughs> 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 I was just like, I have to be careful. No one taking advantage of of me. Like what happened to me before. Like people just want to contact people. Just, just, just want to come to my country for his career. I have like this, this very bad opinion about the foreign journalist but then just i saw him and i saw that he mingled with the i know i know i know i have so many friends in indonesia that who he met even like in in a crowd. like i know exactly because everyone told me do you know vincent we met vincent i was just like mm-hmm. oh okay 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 <laughs> he he met this guy okay, okay oh oh he tried to mingle with the uh, with uh, the networking like trying to write the story and then and then I, I finished all my deadline and then I decide to replay the email <laughs> and that's how we met and then okay I think he's serious about this right thing and then I have all this source that he wants if he he wants so uh, I just like talk with uh, one of the very senior uh Indonesian exile in Germany and I say that shall we shall we give like a chance yes okay (laughs) and then and then um I just like introduce like uh some source I think very important in in uh in the beginning of the research of his book and then he can continue after that Mm -hmm. so there is like a lot of like screening actually I didn't give it easily like I know exactly like I know if I help him like I want the book also, like, I I think I told Finston that I really want that if you write a story about 1965, think about the victim, because it's, the victim is like, the story is not you, but the victim. So yeah, so that's what happened. How did you um,
1: find out about uh, Fabriana?
3: Oh, no, I mean, everybody knew. I mean, everybody knows. uh who febriana is um so when i when i got there she was i mean i guess uh through social media and just the community of of journalists working in in jakarta she's a major figure and she had a you know she had a an organization called you know remember 65 so she was absolutely somebody that um that was a clear sort of um you know, she was a, a a road to any kind of work you want to do on this. And I'll, I should add quickly. I mean, like, Fabriana has a very coherent critique of international journalism in in Southeast Asia and the Global South, and I think it's basically one hundred percent right. I think sometimes we have the the tiniest of disagreements, but I mean, it is absolutely right to be suspicious of a of a white American man that shows up in Jakarta, like so. If I had written this book just based on sort of declassified files um, and sort of what was in the public sphere, it would have taken me much less time. I I took a, a lot of time slowly trying to meet the people that really cared about this, convince them that what I was doing was good. And then they introduced me to the next level of people who introduced me to the next level of people, which allowed me to actually based the the story around the the survivors and um it, it was important to me that that the people who really cared told me that it's you know that it's worthwhile if, if if everyone had said stop don't do this you know that would have been entirely different issue so there was a very you know so was one of the very first people that said okay we'll see how, what you're gonna do i'll introduce you to this person this person this person and i kept going slowly and slowly and slowly. Eventually. I think a full year after this conversation, she just described moving to Solo for a while and just like living near a lot of the survivors and explaining to them all of the, um, all of them what I was doing and just to so slowly get to know who actually really wanted to be a part of this. And, you know, because people like Bhaskar Wardaya or Winarso, who runs the, the survivors organization in Solo, because they kept saying yes, 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 keep going, keep going, I felt a lot more confident um, doing it. But yeah, but she was, she was a huge, huge like bridge to cross. I mean, not not like it was you know thought about in that terms, but in in, in retrospect, she made a lot of the initial research pos- possible and, and introduced me to a lot of people. Which, as she rightly points out, foreign correspondents should not be awarded automatically, <laughs> like just because somebody shows up and says, "Oh, I'm doing this." Like, there's mm-hmm. very, very especially. I mean, I mean, we can talk about like the politics of foreign correspondence for the whole time if we we needed but coming from South America to Southeast Asia it was very I was very disillusioned with the process I mean in South America the the, the role of a correspondent is a little bit different and in Southeast Asia I saw a lot of things that are really not uh, encouraging I mean there's a lot of times that uh, I thought like what is even the point of having Western mm-hmm. Western press out here there's the relationship is I mean I, I say this often sometimes that the Jakarta method is not only about the formation of a neo-colonial global order. It is also published into one. Right. So, so I'm also a part of this story, right? Like the fact that a book that comes out in New York um, will make a bigger splash than one that comes out in, you know, uh, 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 let's say, you know, Cambodia is, is, is related to the things in the book. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the situation for, for, for 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 Western journalism in Southeast Asia, I think really justifies the skepticism that Fabriana just described. I'm so really interested.
1: Oh, yeah, because there's on one hand there's this idea of like, well, you've got Western journalists, they're just going to push the imperialist agenda. They could be working for the CIA. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't know. You know, there's that part of it. And then there's the other element of it, which is I think, Fabriana, if you could talk about this too, your own experience about speaking publicly about 1965 and the consequences to your life and career. If you could expand on that and why people would be very hesitant to talk about these, uh, this uh, event.
0: Yeah, it goes everything um when you write about 1965 I, I lost my job so I lost my job and it's very traumatic even until today I try to cope with that trauma um so we are dealing with a very powerful Indonesian military right and then um they have like um I mean like people everywhere like in, including like no one of the president like can ignore that power even like Jokowi. So for a journalist, I I saw like I realized that not so many journalists wrote about that, but that there there was an even the um international people tribunal in the Hague in nine, um, 2015 that it changed everything. At first like I felt conflicted because my family was part of the story then uh, I was thinking that, I think like every Indonesian is part of the story. I shouldn't feel like conflicted with that because can you imagine like 1 million people uh, killed and then, uh, okay, we don't even yeah, know the yeah, we don't around. even know that. Yeah, yeah maybe like the, the, the number is bigger. So every single Indonesian is actually have a story about their family getting kidnapped or killed. Uh, like first example my uh, with my family so i think that um i convinced myself my self at that time i shouldn't be afraid to write about it and feel conflicted because every indonesian is part of story so not only me so then i report about that story and then i broke the news and then i think like my article was getting went viral um until like the retired military general who got involved on that operation came to me and said to me, I don't like, the I don't like everything that I did. He came to me and then I got intimidated by the Islamic Defender Front and then my office didn't defend me. And then I was depressed because my family said they were afraid and they, uh, asked me to stop being journalist which is that's like the biggest the biggest uh thing that makes me depressed because it it's family should like mm-hmm. support me and it's very hard so it's 2016 I experienced so I think like it's before I met Vincent so 2016 I experienced like a very like I attempt to suicide that's what I happened so it's, it's really like, so when, why I didn't replay your email also, Vincent, because i trying to um, cope with my mental health issue as well after I lost my job. I don't trust anyone. I had a trust issue, like this foreign journalist emailed me talking about 1965. It's very <laughs> traumatic. Yeah. It's very, very traumatic. So I tried to like get myself together. So that's like the cost. Uh, that I have to pay for writing this story, and even actually when I ra- ra- write the story, and I wrote the story. When I wrote about the International People Tribunal, and I hear I heard all the testimony, I was crying. I was crying. Mm-hmm. I was crying because I imagine my grandfather and the other my family member, and even like when I read Vincent book. So I promise to finish it before this. I can't because I keep crying when I read it. Even like in, in introduction, I can't stand reading this book. Yeah. I can't. I cannot finish it like that fast because it's just heartbreaking story. I, I still feel that it's very emotional reading that book for me. Like I cannot even, like I'm reading the introduction and it's already make me cry. Like, oh my God, I, I understand Oh, I mean, like, it's very difficult. And I read another chapter and oh my God, there's a a story about the survivor, which is I always imagine my family when I read that book.
1: That's such a good point. Like, um, I mean, it's called The Jakarta Method. It's about the CIA and everything. But I also found this book very emotional. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was emotional on so many levels. Like, yes, you're talking about the survivors. You're talking about the consequences of these horrific events and also it is the other thing that um was moving to me and really uh, was just this idea of like oh you've been gaslit your entire life and (laughs) then a book comes along and is like hello (laughs) actually you're not crazy (laughs) these things did happen um and the cia and where washington um was part of it so yeah that's uh it's amazing um the other thing too is I, like reading your articles that you um sent us in, we, we got them Google translated and it just, the symposium was supposed to be about why did 1965 happen and the fact that you did the reporting on it and then lost your job, mm-hmm. Um, just the irony of that situation and the um, I did want to think like you were saying you didn't think that it would have those effects though writing that the article at all yes um, yeah so uh, the bravery of it nevertheless so thank you for that
0: um, and as the did no one published that story so so <coughs> many journalists in that symposium building and only me published that story I didn't know what happened in the newsroom across the country but no one published that story. Only me. So it's crazy. Wow.
1: And you didn't know that it was going to have those consequences. So yeah,
0: and I, I suggest like I mean, like I predict like I don't know maybe there was a self censorship in the news. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure, but there's only me. Like so many like dozen journalists there in the press conference. And it's only me published that story, and after like I got I got the intimidation, and then it went viral, and then. Other media report about my intimidation, which is mm-hmm. like not right. not the core of the story. The story mm-hmm. is about the symposium, right. like this group of Islam militant, Islamist militant with the retired general trying to like, uh, trying to like show their power. That uh, so actually like the re- respond to the um, uh, international people tribunal. So that group like. Uh, uh, they like initiate this symposium. They are trying to <laughs> tell the Indonesian people, no, it's not right. Like Indonesia is not guilty. Indonesia is not guilty because this mm-hmm. the International People Tribunal. Uh, the verdict say that Indonesia is guilty.
2: Did you um, you you're talking about kind of the the domestic reaction to um to your article and how the domestic media. Um, handled the situation do you 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 also have views on how you were treated by the foreign media and as um, people in the UK and um, I guess uh, the podcast will go out to people you know in the English speaking world um, what was your view on what what kind of shaped your suspicion of 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 foreign media or you did touch on it but maybe you could just um, talk a little bit more about that
0: uh, in general, foreign media in general.
2: Yeah, <laughs> or specific um, or specific experiences like what? It's up to you how much did you, you did you think that okay. they had do, Did you think they had agendas or or did you think that they were trying to get sound bites from you and take to take them out of context or, or did you just have a general kind of feeling of, of...
0: Uh, in my own experience
2: mm-hmm.
0: my editor really relied on me. So if I say that this is yeah, you can go with this so it it's not going to happen because they don't know anything about indonesia so they rely on me so when Mm. i say that this is we need to revise this so i don't think like personally i experienced that because they are they know that i'm like very expertise on my own country and i also like i'm going i'm like i always like uh speak everything that I f- I feel that this is wrong like this article is wrong like for example the virginity test the last the the one of the Indonesian journals say that uh, there will be no virginity test in Indonesia mm. uh, for, <laughs> the for the military member. yeah the fact that there is no uh, institutional statement so there is no statement for, from the institution of the Indonesian military but i think he just used it to like promote his own career as, I don't know, he want to run as a president. So I don't know. Uh, so I think like I give my opinion to my editor. We have to be careful. careful, okay, okay, okay. mm-hmm. next, next time. But I don't know like the other journalists. But like what I told you, like many foreign journalists is trying to take advantage of local journalists. It's happened to me. Uh, and even i don't get paid and i so, so many stories mm. and also i got mm. mansplained. but newsroom I, I i work with so many great editor i'm mostly from the uk okay. mostly from the <laughs> uk so they, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they they really respect me but not in my case i don't think i experienced that but i don't know other journalists
1: Yeah, and to just give a little more detail on that is that uh, Fabriana has has written for The Guardian. So apparently the editor Mm -hmm. at The Guardian is not as horrible as me and Wei thought. (laughs) (laughs) We sometimes have beef with The Guardian,
2: yeah.
0: I have have like one editor, but I cannot tell. It's not Mm professional. I know some editors are very racist. Mm
3: -hmm. They only
0: give... Uh, the, the assignment to the native speaker mm-hmm. journalist, right? Inside to me even talk, I know a lot about like, for example, with Papua, but they gave it to the journalists in UK and the way that they uh, pick the angle of the story usually like a uh, very bombastic, but mm. not actually necessary for Indonesia. <laughs> So that's actually uh, some of the article. I think it's for clickbait, not for like necessary for like, this is what actually the journalists matter, for the journalism matter, no. But yeah, it's happened for, for like some foreign media. They just want like some clickbait and bombastic. And then, yeah, I think like, I don't think it's necessary. So sometimes I feel like so... Weird someday if my editor asks me to write about it. So I personally will refuse to do that and I say, okay, you can assign, but not me. Mm-hmm. And I don't need the money as well. Mm-hmm. So that's what I always like, um, always say to my editor if I don't feel comfortable, always, always say to them. So I don't have a problem with that. I just like refuse to do that okay Amazing.
1: so um do you have any such dilemmas <laughs> vincent i mean i know you've written for the la times for fi- the financial times and the washington post um and now i think in the u.s basically the distress for mainstream media is like at an all-time high right. and probably rightly so because of a lot of the um well a lot of the reporting is more like uh state reporting i guess like a It seems like, but it's not across the board, right? I'm assuming your your work with these. um, Well, anyway.
3: No, I I mean, uh,
1: better your experience and your thoughts on that.
3: The dynamics that Fabriana described are all present, and they're all much worse than they were when I started. I mean, I'm not that old, but um, I started in international journalism, I guess, 2007, 2008, and everything's worse. So. I, I mean, I'm not going to say which publications, or which editors, but I have definitely lists of people that I will never work with again because mm. they prioritized a headline that is clickbaity over what I know to be the story. Um, they ask you to do work and then disappear. Um, the, again, this could be an entire conversation, but the economics of international journalism are headed very much in the wrong direction. and They have been um, uh, for a long time. And what that means is not enough people in offices in, in New York and, and London are kind of deciding in advance what the story is. Right. Cause they don't mm, have, they don't have yeah. the money or resources to, to employ someone like Fabriana full time, you know, like ideally that you, you would have somebody that is that it is their job to tell you what's happening in Indonesia. Um, what happens more often these days is somebody in New York already knows what they think the story is. They find somebody on the ground. Sometimes it's local. Sometimes it's like a rich kid from like, that went to Oxford that's kind of like having a gap like a mm. lot of foreign correspondence now. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like a modern way to do a gap year is you oh My gap you... is true. <laughs> no <laughs> I do it from mouse swap everything yeah. will be <laughs> yeah, oh my can. god because it used to be okay we have a veteran who's been in the field for 10 years he speaks indonesian and portuguese river and i was uh-huh. like okay here's a 22 year old whose parents are really paying for them to go live in whatever kuala lumpur and they just kind of want to get their name in the guardian once <laughs> and then their name in this place once and then they're going to go back to london and work at a consultancy or like whatever the yeah, 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 yeah. and like um and that all has to do with the economics of, 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 of the of the production of news and the production of knowledge. Right. Like, I mean, I worked at the Guardian and I worked at the Guardian offices mm-hmm. um, 10 years ago, 2009 and 10. And um, I won't say too much. What I think is poked, like, you know, undisputable is that mm-hmm. there's less less people for the same amount of work. And. When you have parts of the world that are so complex and so unknown, like Indonesia is, right? Like the average American comes to, like we were discussing before the recording started, the average American, you t- tell them you're writing about Indonesia, they go, hey, well, what, Polynesia, Micronesia? When you're dealing with a country that is totally unknown, you really need to take the time to have a, someone on the ground, like explain from the beginning the story. And when you're trying to produce, put out 20, 20 pieces of news a day, you know, um, all of it, which are designed to generate maximum clicks, you just, you just will not do a good job. And then you end up relying more and more on freelancers. You pay them less and less. Um, you don't have somebody on the ground, like Fabriana is describing, to say to the editor, no, no, this is really what the story is. It's not what you think. It's not what you saw on the internet. This is really what it is mm. and the less we have of that the, the more of a one-dimensional wo- view of the whole world we have which is basically dictated by the al- ideological priors of middle management in in newsrooms in new york and london mm.
0: so you think it's
1: less sorry go ahead
0: and remember when trump was president is uh, all this story all like almost all about trump and I was just like so upset because, oh my God, Trump is everywhere and everything. <laughs> like, even like, oh my God, there is like a story about the Trump hotel, like, whatever, or, or like, whatever related to Trump is become a headline. I think, like, oh my God, there is so many stories in Indonesia. And I also like not only Trump, like, every single thing about Trump is headlined in like American media. And I think, yeah, it's important, but like, there are so many stories, like environmental disaster in my country, climate change, people, but like <laughs> they don't really prioritize that. And I was so upset because when my editor said, "Trump, do you want to write on?" No, I don't want. I don't know anything about Trump in Indonesia. Yeah, no, yeah. No, yeah. I want to write about
3: Trump. <laughs> no, well, they found a way. I mean, this was. I mean, I don't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to name publications or editors or whatever. but well, when I got
0: obsessed with Trump.
3: Yeah, when I got to Southeast Asia in 2017, it was like everything that they wanted me to write about. Certain people, certain publications won't say who it, it was really supposed to be about Trump, really, like whether even if it was something in the southern Philippines, it was really like, well, isn't this done, being done by Duterte, who's a bad guy in the same way that Trump is a bad guy? Everything, <laughs> everything yeah. was oh really just about the Trump yeah, issue. You could yeah, you could never yeah. tell a story on its own on its own terms. And I was just like, what are we doing out here? Like, what's the point? But yeah, I, I, so I just want to. Yeah, I'm just agreeing with Fabriano.
2: Now Trump's not president anymore. It, it's it's so yes. great that all the world's problems have just disappeared. Yeah,
3: yeah, 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 Thank yeah, God. yeah. America's back. America's yeah. good again. Mm-hmm. You can just close your eyes. America's
2: back in Vietnam.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Kamala Harris. says, Did you see? You see Kamala Harris put flowers down at the uh, what she believed to be the memorial of John McCain, but it was actually a statue dedicated to the Vietnamese uh, <laughs> sort of, that shot him down. <laughs> oh, <my> God. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! It's just typical. Yes. yes it's just typical american oh you, go, you go around the world and you assume yeah. everything is about how you're good yeah. right? without realizing that without realizing that the other side of this conflict has its own narratives so. oh my god, god.
0: Who, who is the fixer but we need to talk with the
3: fixer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and high true. five them <laughs> yeah yeah exactly
1: yeah someone is out to get Kamala. <laughs> yeah they set
2: her up oh Amazing.
3: i think yeah i think that actually i think <laughs> I think that actually is true within Washington, but uh, it's a separate issue. I think Kamala doesn't have a lot of friends, but yeah. Um, yeah. Everything, everything ends up being about yourself. I mean, this is a, this is human nature anyways, right? Humans, humans are always going to, whatever they see, they're going to be thinking about themselves first. That's just uh that's just a flaw of, 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 of our species. And so when you have everything dictated from newsrooms in, in the North Atlantic uh, then everything just ends up being about the North Atlantic, even if it's, theoretically happening on the ground in Myanmar.
1: So you're um, kind of suggesting, and I suppose it might be like 50% of this or half, you know, like this, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but that it's kind of like a little bit of like lack of resources, time crunching, clickbait, economic reasons. Right. Um, and then the other reasoning that I think is, um, and tell me if I'm like far off base, what your thoughts are on this, like basically what is covered in the book the sort of agenda of washington in the books you know Mm -hmm. is still sort of ongoing but they're Mm -hmm. sort of pivoting their messaging towards um well i mean it's always been china but now there are different factors involved in Mm -hmm. that messaging um yeah so tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that and how it how it's sort of evolving Mm -hmm. um yeah
3: yeah. So, as I said, one of the, what I do in the book often is just kind of rely on the real experts and then put things together in a global um, way. And there's this one, one very good um, uh, historian of the Cold War at Harvard, I believe, uh, Adorn Vestad. Um, and what he says is, if you look at the history of the United States, this is a country that has been engaged in aggressive expansionist militarism at every single point in its history. So it happened to be that in the Cold War between 1945 and 1990 communism was the big bad enemy. Um, Before that, it was often black or indigenous, uh, you know, it was indigenous people in the United States, it was it was Philippines, it was Cuba, uh, Central America. Um, And in the post 9-11 era, just kind of the war on terror, you know, uh, Muslim terrorism just got slotted into the same um, enemy grouping that uh um that the the that the communists have put in the cold war and i think probably the next one is china i think we're we're seeing a re a re um a a reorganization of forces to 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 really focus energies on china and again like it's the same people it's the same Mm -hmm. or it's the same institutions right like one thing i always try to um underline about the cold war is that like if you look at the the um people uh the the states and institutions which carried out really very real human rights abuses in in the communist world at the very least they don't exist anymore right Mm. in the case of the united states it's the exact same institutions the cia the state department the same media it's like there's a direct line from the things that i'm speaking about the book to the, the people that will be um prosecuting a cold war against china now to the answer what i think is the other sort of part of the question is like how do these things evolve? I think if you look at the 50s and 60s, um, the period that I look at uh, most closely in the book, the United States is kind of like a young and bumbling imperialist. Like they're just they're 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 very like. They have a lot of money, but they don't have a lot of nuance or subtlety. So the way that they do things is they show up with a lot of money and they try to bribe the military to do this or that. They try to buy an election. They try to bomb things. Um, it's very clumsy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in the 60s, you know, the very the classic military coup involved literally tanks rolling into the Capitol and, and expelling the elected leader. And then it's very obvious what's happening in the decades since things are a little bit more subtle. Um, often you see the, the the use of judicial or parliamentary or media assaults in, the, uh, in support of whatever regime change operation that, that you're um, uh, trying to carry out. So if you look at the, the case of Bolivia, 2019 to 2021, this is a real case in which you can see the Jakarta method reproduced, but also in a more mature form, right? Like you have very classically a... A uh, 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 leftist government, which has been very popular over its uh, rule in Bolivia, um, but and then is eventually overthrown with the use of the military. But it isn't just so clear that the military says we're doing a coup, right? There's this, there's this, there's this constellation of, of of forces which are clouding the scene, saying, okay, well, there was electoral irregularities, okay, uh, there's protests, okay, um, he's overstepped his bounds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very hard for people that only know the history of the 70s. To, or, or that don't know the history of the 70s rather very well to recognize. Oh no, this is a coup. Just because they say that there's problems doesn't mean it's not a coup. Mm-hmm. And then we just got a report a couple weeks ago that finally, you know, all of the most conservative and and sort of you know establishment uh, um, organizations recognized that this regime that was in power from 2019 to 21 carried out uh, torture, torture and execution of of political prisoners, or sorry, of, of, of its political opponents. So while they didn't do it, you know, the coup took place in a different way than it would have in the 70s, you still have the same dynamics at work, you still have a State mm. Department, which is going to be more likely to look the other way, if, if you have a leftist um, um, being removed from power. Uh, And you have uh, the justification of of human rights abuses if you're you're taking care of, quote unquote, like radical, dangerous elements, you know, Mm -hmm. in in this case, often just indigenous people in Bolivia. Um, But it's kind of in its more mature form. The United States as a hegemon is more more confident now, and it's developed a a very wide array of tools in the period since it kind of took over the world at the end of World War II
2: scary so scary um yeah um febriana i was watching your um documentary with my parents and we loved it um our mother's land
0: yes yeah our mother-
2: and a lot of the women um who were um who you were interviewing in in this documentary they were talking about capital and 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 how they see the fight as them versus capital. I was wondering if you could um, give us your take on that, and and um, and then a little because I'm. This is the the stuff about the media and the media bias, and also um, how this plays out on a global scale, and how the U.S. protects its interests um, and it, it, capital, basically, um, also plays out on a domestic um, stage in your documentary.
0: Yeah, I think. My documentary trying to give a voice to the like uh, vulnerable communities or like these voiceless people or communities, which is like the woman, that I think like uh, they get like less coverage uh, from the uh, Indonesian media because usually when you cover a story, you only focus like for example, protests against. Uh, The giant uh, company like Palm Oil, they only focus in a group, but they didn't tell like the detail wh- what is the impact to the, uh, this vulnerable community, women and children. So I try to like give a voice to this woman in, in my uh, documentary and even like uh, put them as the heroines. Which is like the, in the spotlight that even the woman like uh, they, they they are in the front line until to this day, so um so um I don't know uh your question is about related with the U.S. something
2: oh I can't remember but yeah it well, just made me think, think of it yeah
1: yeah because basically what struck me from your documentary was essentially this happens in Malaysia as well I mean it happens all over the world is um corporations come in. To, oh yeah. Um, areas. yeah yeah
0: so I think oh yeah it's still it's still related to uh, what happened during 1965 so mm-hmm. actually uh, under the Sukarno regime uh, we have these agrarian reforms um, initiated by the father of uh, one of the senior Indonesian exile that I introduced first to Vincent mm-hmm. we, we have to keep her name in secret because uh she didn't want um to get this sp- any spotlight so so this uh his name is a uh, vice of the chairman of the indonesian communist party initiate mm-hmm. uh reform so it's like the first uh concept to balance not to balance actually yeah you know yeah the concept of communism that uh, we don't want to be con- we don't want our nature to be controlled by mm-hmm. the uh, corporation. So when the Suharto coup Su-Harto Sukarno, then that's like the first, uh, the the early year when the corporation have like such uh, great access to all mm-hmm. these in the nature is because we are very rich. So for like thirty two years. Uh, so Suha- under the Suharto regimes, this corporation like built this empire of- in Indonesia, mm-hmm. which is exploit all the nature. So this my documentary also still related to that. That I but I I cannot tell to the audience actually that it's related to what happened like Sukarno, ko mm-hmm. Suharto. It's just too complicated. But some of the story too. Took place in, it's happened like the, and uh it's still like in before the Suharto fall right like for example the one in Sulawesi, but all these corporation actually settle uh, uh uh during the Suharto um, uh, administration. So this is this like after after the reformation. So this woman is trying to. Um, I think like organized a movement against um, this corporation and it's still happening until today. Mm. I think like even though Suharto fell, but the I think like I think the new we can still feel like the presence of the new order through this corporation and company, Indonesian military working with the corporation or palm oil. Plantation or like coal company is still happening until today. So that's like the legacy of Suharto.
1: I mean, and really to go back to the book, it just seems like if a country doesn't fall in line, does not actually fall in line with capitalist corporate interests, if they do decide to go towards more socialist, progressive, no, these terms sometimes don't mean anything anymore, but sort of like more egalitarian type of. systems the u.s is gonna come in and dismantle your democracy i mean that is that a fair assessment of what's gonna happen
3: so um yes i mean in in we could break down exactly like you know the various components but i think land reform as februari points to is really a big one. I mean, if you step back and take a look at all of the regime change operations, coups, things like this that happened in the 20th century, the be- the best predictor of them, one happening, or if you like, if you really want the United States to come and mess with you, land reform tends to be a theme that runs throughout this. I mean, land reform was an issue in Guatemala in 1954, mm-hmm. Indonesia, 1965, Brazil, 1964. Um, and so, um You you say that, you know, if you don't get in line, there's a very interesting distinction between the countries that really do have to get in line and, and the rare exceptions where you're kind of allowed to break those rules. Now, if you look at the countries, the rare examples of the countries that actually did move from being maybe uh, the so-called third world countries to first world countries, they were given exceptions to these rules. So like, for example, when the United States comes to your country and the United States is like actually running your economy and they want you to succeed, they will do land reform. So like (laughs) South Korea is a really good example of a country that operated outside of the rules, which I think applied to most of the rest of the global South, um, went from being a very poor country after World War II to now one of the richest countries in the world. Again, Japan, the United States pushed through land reform when the United States was running that country. However, if you try it in a country where the process is going to threaten U.S. corporations or the process is going to be perceived as inimical... To mm-hmm. the construction of the U.S.-led capitalist order, then you could be in real trouble. So you have this this bizarre thing where if you try to do something in Guatemala that the United States actually did in South Korea,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you're going to be branded as a communist or or um, as an enemy of the global order. And, and again, that makes sense because you are an enemy of the global order. Mm-hmm. Over from in the period from 1945 to 19 to 2000, you see the slow. deliberate construction of a U.S.-led capitalist border, and one of the most important rules of that game is that um, property rights should be global. So if you have U.S. companies or European companies that are operating uh, in your territory, by insisting on your sovereign right to control your resources in your country, as the leader in Iran did, uh, a leadership in Iran did in 1953 or Indonesia did in the mid sixties or Guatemala in 1954, you are kind of breaking the rules. And then, you know, w- when you break the rules, there's all kinds of um, punishments and they'll, they'll start off um, with smaller things, but then they'll build up to the worst things if, if those things don't work. I think that's another thing that Americans have a hard time understanding. When I talk about a us backed mass murder of between a half a million and a million people um, you do, there is kind of a, uh, how do we put this? Like a, a process of of, of 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 starting with with the more let's say moderate punishments or the more um, low level sort of um, uh, 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 the things that are supposed to stop you, right? So in Indonesia, in 1955, they 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 start uh, bribing right wing Muslim parties. That doesn't work. They try to foment and participate in the civil war. That doesn't work. It's only when they when when things get really really. Um. um uh, 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 hot that they turn to these more extreme measures but yeah i mean i think that you did see the construction of a let's call it a rules-based liberal order from 1945 to mm-hmm. 2000 except that some of those rules are you cannot infringe on property rights uh, mm-hmm. of, of 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 investors in the global north mm-hmm. okay so and, can
1: uh, you explain land reform to me
3: Fabriana, <laughs> <laughs> so, do you want to explain the, the indonesian land reform or should
0: oh yeah. it's very complicated i didn't oh, think no. you. <laughs> there was a rule that you cannot own a land more than five hectare it's like five thousand meter yeah, yeah five, five, we have,
3: we have five hectares hectare. yeah.
2: yeah
0: yeah so most of the uh, owner of the land that uh Access to five hectare is like a Muslim cleric in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. I think that's like when it started the anti-communist sentiment. So Islam yeah. is anti-communist. Mm-hmm. So I have an argument with Islamic Defender Fronts on Twitter. Before I delete it, I say that <laughs> because they accuse me as anti-Islam. I say, mm-hmm. hey, Haji Misbah is a Muslim and he is the member of Communist Party. Don't mm-hmm. you say that? Yeah. So in, in the communist party is like in the Islam, so don't try to get the audience lost with that. So, Indonesian Communist Party is not anti Islam,
3: and maybe just to take a bit step back globally, like where in the other places, in the broadest terms, like uh, land reform is about muse- moving from feudal to capitalist property mm-hmm. relations, right? So, in Marxist terms, um, yeah, that would you know, be feudals and capitalism, but even like you know, liberal. And everybody kind of agreed on this and and, and basically in a lot of the global South uh, um, and even Europe, if you look back, it used to be that land was held by one person or one family that would have a huge um, uh, uh, um, piece of land that they would often um, quite inefficiently um, farm on. And then they would extract rents from peasants. Right. So like, this was the classic thing with with Mao and the landlords in China. The landlords would just have a huge amount of land. Everyone was would be forced to work for them and um, surplus off to to the the feudal landlord. Mm-hmm. In in Brazil, th- these were often literally feudal. You know, people you know uh, people that were given their their land by the the, the empire, the Portuguese crown, right? So in 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 britain you had to do this too you had to get you know land out of the hands of giant unproductive feudal lords and then give it to break it up into smaller pieces so that it'll be mm. it'll be operated on uh, along capitalist lines the idea being when you have people actually owning their own land working on it for their own profits it's going to be not only fair to them but much more uh, efficient for the production of capitalism so a lot of these leaders that were Trying to carry out land reform they were explicitly trying to develop capitalist property relations this was this was not like the first step necessarily on the way to communism um although of course in in both china and vietnam you had very bloody land reform policies but yeah i mean brazil this you know a lot of my work in brazil is about the fact that this didn't happen a huge like the exploitation of the Amazon to this day has a lot to do with these still existing feudal property relations that the 19 that the the land reform of the 1960s did not resolve because it was stopped in its tracks by chopped in its tracks by a US backed coup so in both Indonesia and Brazil environmental uh, issues are related to this sort of unresolved question uh, of land reform
1: thanks for watching part one of our interview with Vincent Bevins and for Brianna Ferdows uh, we will be Back next week for part two. Um, in the meantime, catch uh, Fabriana's documentary *Our Mother's Land*. We have a link in the description and in our bio, and also links to her all her other articles and the article on the symposium that we reference in the interview. Also, buy this book. It's available literally everywhere, but we've put the publisher's site in the description and in our bio. So. See you next week.